Hey, guys. <laughs> what in the world are you listening to? Oh, I love this song. <laughs> you switched it up on us, Greg Is Pollard. this Sarah Delia's uh, pick? Or is this well, your no, own? She gave me a few things to choose from. But yeah, I got to give Sarah credit for uh, picking this. It's, I love uh, this song. Peter... Behorn, Bjorn, or Behorn, and, and, and Peter Behorn and John performing a song called Young Folks. <laughs> well, you better Which tell the young folks what they're listening to, because th- this isn't the usual music. Well, yeah, this is our new theme music. And they're listening to? That's what I was just telling you. Peter, B- Peter no, Behorn no, no, no. and John. The name of the podcast is? Oh, WFA Talks. There you yes. go. There it is. <laughs> yes. We yeah. can't be shown up by the theme music. <laughs> so, yeah, it's time to, you know, get a little, just a... Uh, Get our whistle on. Yeah, I love it. And uh, it's I, I like it. It just feels good. It feels feels right to open up a show. So, yeah, she gave me a few things to choose from. So, awesome. yeah, that's it. <laughs> and that's going to be my head all day. <laughs> Meet your approval, Lisa? Yes, I think so. I, I like that song very much. Yes. Um, <laughs> so are you familiar with that song? I am. I am okay. familiar with that song. I'm, I'm trying to get it used to as uh, WFAE talks, you know. I imagine, you know, a little car driving around yeah. uh, a landscape and, you know. Well, when you like listen to WFA Talks, you uh, <laughs> want you to whistle. <laughs> That's great. So, uh, you know, she, she Sarah D'Elia did a great piece um, with the young principal trumpetist at the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra. Yes, did. And she got him to do the Charlotte Talks theme music. That was awesome. And I haven't heard it yet. I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, that is so cool. So maybe you can insert that in there, too, now. Okay. I mean, (laughs) right here. Insert the Charlotte Talks theme music. Played by our our trumpet, our trumpetist. Let's take it away. He had to improvise it, so I think she she played it for him, and then he basically just... Interesting. Rift it, you know. I don't know how familiar he was. Right. With well, it. What was his name again? John Parker. Parker. Yes, it was an interesting piece of their head. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I have not introduced you all. Of course, this is news director Lisa Wharf, and uh, you gave her a promotion. That's news. <laughs> yes. No. It's I've introduced her as that before as news director, uh, no, assistant never, news director, never as news director. <laughs> did, I, did I introduce you as a news director? Yes, you did. Oh, I thought I said assistant <laughs> yes, news director. Congratulations, okay. Lisa. Yeah. Okay. Yes. People. People will say, "Oh, congratulations on your promotion." I'll say, "Yes, I'm the full fledged." assistant news director but now maybe i can say full-fledged <laughs> news director that, i think that makes you the news czar Greg. Yeah, news czar okay yes of course yeah i, I like news czar i do too <laughs> i should interest you too tom bullock that's an influence reporter yep. yeah busy man this week it's been a hectic week that is that's a fact yeah. it's been very busy so you're you're you were uh on, on Monday, uh, planning to do a story that has uh, taken forever to finish. Uh, uh, yeah, that's no not fault on me, your own. in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a campaign finance story that will get done at some point. But every time I sit down to write it, it's like this uh, – it's it's like a bad luck charm. Um, news breaks. Yes. And then this week, uh, news broke regarding uh, governor's responses to what happened in, in Paris and the call to suspend or halt the Syrian refi- refugee program. And we got a note uh, notice uh, early Monday morning that – Governor McCrory would be having a press conference in Charlotte on Monday afternoon. Yeah, and it was funny, too, because we – it's rare that you get a press conference from the governor's folks that doesn't tell you what it's about. Mm-hmm. And I had been reading about you know some of the other reactions from early governors like Alabama, the governor of Alabama and Bobby Jindal in Louisiana. And uh, all of a sudden it was like, huh, 
And then there was a story in the Carolina Journal that actually came out that day. Um, They had done public records requests to find out how many Syrian refugees um, were in North Carolina. And they actually received that public – the the actual documents – hours before news broke about um, Paris. Mm-hmm. And it showed that, you know, Governor McCrory, um through no no action of his own, um, knew that there were 15. Actually, they had um, a lower number. I think they had something in the high 40s, low 50s. Um, and then all of a sudden, this press release comes out. And we're like, huh. So I called the governor's office just to say, you know, just for planning purposes off the record, what exactly is it? And they said, they're like, oh, Syrian refugees. So we raced down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was such a quickly put together press conference that I went in for, – for people who don't do radio, sometimes we use these things at press conferences called molt boxes, mm-hmm. which is just a big box that you can plug in and there's only one microphone at the table. And I went into the press people at Government Center where the press conference was and I'm like, hey, I just – I'm curious. Is there going to be a molt box or is this something we have to mic ourselves? And they looked at me like – what are you talking about? Hmm. They had no. Ooh, oh, yeah. They had no idea about the press no, conference. Such a common, yeah. yeah, no idea about the press conference itself. <laughs> That's wow. right. And uh, they're like, "Huh, good question." So you know, they got government TV or Gov TV, our little local public access version of C-SPAN. They they you know rallied them to get up there and set up a camera and stuff. They had no idea. That's how quickly this thing was put together. Hmm. It was pretty funny, actually. Wow. And since then, he's been all over. He's, he's become the spokesman, this. pretty much, for all the uh, Republican governors that have come out and and said, "Hey, let's let's uh, put a halt, at least for now, for a while, until uh, about the uh, Syrian refugee program." I don't know what a while means. I guess it's but we've had this uh, general language until we learn more information about how Syrian refugees are are vetted. Is the and there's been some information offered on that. There's this a lot week. of information I mean, actually out there, and it's yeah. not out there just this week. I mean, mm-hmm. the funny thing is. Um, I mean, first of all, going back to how McCrory has been kind of the spokesperson for the governors, mm-hmm. I mean, he is a very prominent Republican governor in a very key state. But, you know, this is fueling speculation, and it is still speculation that um, he maybe possibly could be, might be on a short list for VP nominations for who's ever on the Republican ticket. That's something that's been going around for a while now, and I think that's picking up steam, at least for some people that I've talked to. Um, is just kind of, you know, curious, why is it McCrory that's out there? Why don't we hear from from other folks? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, here's the deal with refugees. And it, it, this is not new information when it comes to how they're vetted. If you're looking to get into the United States, it's probably the worst, slowest way to do it. And here's why. The process takes between 18 and 24 months. You go first through the United Nations they have to screen you. And then you go through security checks through the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, in-person interviews with members of the State Department. And at any step of this process, not only could you be kicked out of the process for not having the proper documents, but you could also get sent to another country. And considering that the United States only takes, I mean, the big number that's being thrown out now is Mm 10,000 refugees. That's what the Obama administration would like to see. Um, that's a tiny, tiny piece of the of the of the overall refugee pie. Since it starts with the UN um, through their High Commissioner of Refugees Office, you have a better chance of going to Canada or Australia or a bunch of other countries that have taken in far more refugees. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot easier to get into the United States on a tourist visa, on a, a student visa, um, without a visa. In some situations, it's it's not really a very efficient way to get in here if you're trying to plant people. Now you've you've which I learned that you've actually been to Syria. We'll get into that in a, in a mm-hmm. few in a, in a few minutes. But 
is it fair to say though that it is harder to check Syrian refugees than it is refugees from other countries? Absolutely. And I, and and here's the thing: a lot of this is being, I would say, the bulk of this is being predicated by fear. And it's fair to be fearful. I mean, what happened in Paris is horrendous. And I understand exactly why people are fearful about that. The idea of it happening on the streets of you know, New York or D.C. or here in Charlotte, it really is frightening. I'm not d- diminishing that in the least. But it's, what's interesting to me is if you're serious about trying to make sure that you stop any potential flow of, of you know, ISIS members, then why is it that you're only focusing on refugees? You know, mm-hmm. why not on these other forms of visa? I mean, let's, yeah. let's not forget that how were the let's let's go to something that's very personal to America. Let's go to the attacks on 9-11. They were not here on, refu- mm-hmm. on, on refugee visas. They were here on other visas. But you don't hear anybody talking about tightening up those other forms of, of ways to get into the country. Student um, visas. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, or worker visas. I mean, there's a million different ways to do it. And it just, you know, it it seems like we're. Fear is a powerful motivator, but legislation passed due to fear quickly often has holes in it and or often has has bigger issues in it. And the only thing I have to say, if you doubt that, is take a look at the Patriot Act. Take a look at all the problems that have come out at, at with the Patriot Act, you know, all the different forms of surveillance. Oh, there's all, a lot of things you could look at. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And let's not forget that this week the, the head of the CIA came out and basically said – this is proof that the Patriot Act was the right thing to do. Everybody who was complaining about it, <clears throat> he referred to it as hand-wringing. Um, you know, they were just hand-wringing. And the reality is, is if you want to live in a perfectly safe place, it comes at a tremendous cost. And it, are Americans willing to pay that cost? Are they willing to give up an, am- an immense amount of personal freedom to be guaranteed that they live in per- perfect security, which is really not a guarantee anyone can make ever? Well, the way this came out, Monday and Tuesday just so fast. It made me think and it's all Republican governors. Was there something – did they do some research over the weekend and poll? Was this, was this part of – was there something more political, politically motivated in, in making this? And it was this? strange too because at that point, you know, the, the passport, the, the, the attacker they thought may be a Syrian refugee posing mm-hmm. as a Syrian refugee, it had not been confirmed. Still and, hasn't. And I, I, think it, I think they have did traced they the – the fingerprints that, yeah, they figured out that it was his fingerprints, indeed, that went through, mm. um, went through Greece. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that was that wasn't until that was after you know this this uproar. And I think that there is a very there's a difference with the way, as your piece noted, you know, refugees are coming through Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're the the influx. They're not, you know what we would consider refugees because they, they can't go through this vetting process. And yeah. so there is more of a, a slipshod uh, vetting that goes on. And, and Greg and I worked through, I mean, Greg was my editor on the piece. And one of the things that we try to figure out a right place to put, which I think is the point that you're making, is really the difference between America's system, which mm-hmm. is still a system, and Europe, which has been overwhelmed. We don't have, so far there's been right around 2,000 Syrian refugees that have been resettled in the United States since the beginning of the Syrian civil war. That's like four and a half years ago now. 2,000. Um, you can get more than that on, a, on, on just a regular Tuesday crossing the Mediterranean from Turkey into Greece 
And, and that's a daily occurrence now. You know, refugees don't come to the United States by crossing the Atlantic on an inflatable dinghy. They mm-hmm. just can't. So it's that you know, we have this wonderful luxury of these two great oceans that separate us from this particular conflict, from this particular wave of refugees. But what I think a lot of people forget is what's going on in Europe. The reason that the, the European system is falling apart when it comes to trying to scan and check these people is they don't have the luxury. They're coming through countries like Greece, which is still – in this incredible economic strait. I mean, they're in, they're, their economy is still not good. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't afford to do the kind of stuff that we're doing. Um, I'm not saying our system is perfect. Nobody would. I mean, one of the things that, that we put in, Greg, you know, that you, you, know, you really flagged was the, uh, the testimony of the FBI director, James Comey, which is an absolutely important point, which says, you know, right now we, we'll, we screen them, but if they're not in our system, we're not gonna, they're not going to throw up a flag. In a country like Syria, which is so war-torn and has been for su- such a long time, um, a lot of that data just doesn't exist. So, yes, there is the possibility that Syrian refugees could come to the United States as they have in other places. But I would also remind folks that there is no such thing as a perfectly safe system. And mm-hmm. I find it interesting that at this time, you have the president of France, Francois Hollande, coming out to say we're going to continue to take the 30,000 refugees this year that we said we would because it's an important thing to do. And here in America, we're saying, well, even if one gets through, it's too many. It's, it's a gut call, and there are good arguments on both sides. I just, I'm always fearful when I see people jumping to, to react without looking at everything completely. And for those who don't know, Tom has had an extensive international reporting experience. You've... Uh, I've always asked you a lot about your experiences in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan, uh, but you've and gosh, how many countries have you reported from? Oh, you've been in Africa. You've you've been <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's I a mean, good question. I'm not even sure. You you you, you cover and you you cover. You were part of um, NPR's team that covered the Paris riots mm-hmm. over a decade ago. Uh, you just made me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you've also uh, I I've never asked you about Syria until today and. I asked uh, just about a half hour before I came in to into the studio to record this. I asked, "Have you have you been to re- Syria? Yes. Uh, on work? Yes. Uh, who, mm-hmm. who did you? Why? Well, we we interviewed uh, Bashar al-Assad, yeah, <laughs> president of Syria. Yeah. So tell us about that experience. Um, well, for context, it was um, it was at a time in kind of the early two thousands when the U.S. and Syria. There was a, kind of a detente, right? There was, there were, there were, the relationship was thawed. The United States was looking at Syria to try to cut off the flow of Islamic extremists into Iraq. And uh, the State Department was trying to put out feelers. Um, you know, Syria was trying to get off this list of um, states that sponsor terrorism. And we, uh, I was working on the NPR foreign desk, and I actually came straight out of Baghdad into Jordan. And then we took a road trip from um, northern Jordan um, through to, to Damascus. And, um, you know, it was a lot of effort to get our visas in. And um, it was really kind of an informational um, reporting trip. They wouldn't let us report there. So there's no recording of it, although I came with a recorder and a camera, as I always do, just in case they change their mind. And, um, I mean, it's amazing to me right now to think that I literally could not make that drive today. Mm-hmm. To drive through that area now, if you look at a map of modern-day Syria, what you find is you find al-Nusra Front, which is another extremist organization that a lot of people don't talk about. You find Free Syrian Army guys. You find, you know, regime army troops. And then you get – you have to drive through the outskirts of Damascus, the suburbs, which are just bombed into ruin now. And, um, you know, Syria was an amazing place. It was beautiful. 
Um, it was really interesting. It was and remains a Bathist state, which means they have this incredible um, secret police and intelligence organizations. We were told which hotel we would stay at. Um, we used to go to the bazaar uh, and just walk around because, I mean, it's, it's serious. You've got to go to these places that are literally written about in the Bible and go see them, and it's mm-hmm. right there in front of you. It's really amazing. But um, it, it was so obvious the guys that were following us and I'm positive they wanted us to know they were following us mm-hmm. that I um, – as <laughs> a joke, I went up to one guy who we saw in the hotel lobby two days in a row and we kept seeing him around the – um, the bazaar on the streets we were walking to, and I asked, I wanted to find this particular rug shop that we heard about that was supposed to be really good. <laughs> and so I, I asked directions, and he answered me in perfect English, and then I just went on my way. And he was, he gave me great directions. But to give you another idea of how tight the security was, again, uh, when we went to go meet, okay, Damascus is this city, and there are these, this, it's buttressed right up against some mountain ranges. It reminded me of basically my hometown, Salt Lake City, um, that there are mountains right there, and there is this big white monstrosity that's sitting on top of one of the mountains and that is the presidential palace and from a distance it looks like the old headquarters from the cartoon super friends mm-hmm. with the big arch i mean it's the most ridiculous <laughs> thing you've ever seen and you know syria is not a rich country um so uh we were picked up by a um you know a, basically a motorcade a syrian presidential motorcade most countries you would find like you know black mercedes or something like that this was a fleet of black hyundais that picked us up and drove us up to this big old monstrosity. And I'm I'm the only one carrying equipment. I've got my recorder, my microphone, and a camera. And who are you there with? I am there with um, the the senior foreign editor for NPR at the time. Um, the uh, a bunch of Ann Garrels, Deb Amos, Mike Schuster, um, Ivan Watson, a bunch of people who you know, long time mm-hmm. NPR listeners would know. Um, and we we get there, and there's this big white or red carpet, and I walk first because I figured they're taking us to this room that where we're going to get searched because we're going to meet with the president of a Baathist regime, and we're Americans. And um, I go to open the door at the end of this long red carpet, and the door opens before I, my hand touches the, the doorknob, and there's this giant, like t- really tall, probably 6'1", 6'2", super skinny guy um, who opened the door. He's like, come on in, and it's Bashar Assad. And I'm like... At first, I'm a little surprised. I'm like, oh, wow, they um, they didn't even search my stuff. Oh, of course. They've already gone through absolutely everything that we have and know that there's nothing we can sneak in. Mm-hmm. The joys of a Bathist regime. Um, and it's funny because he's this tall, quiet, very meek guy. Not at all what you would expect from a Middle East dictator. He was never supposed to be the dictator. His father was this brutal dictator. Um his brother, his older brother, was actually supposed to take the reins, but he was killed in a car crash. And so Bashar al-Assad, who was at the time in London as an optometrist, his his joy in life was to be an eye doctor, hmm. um, took over the reins. And um, it's interesting to me because he came across as so meek to me then, but now looking at what either he's doing or is being done in his name, my opinion of him has just vastly changed, obviously. Hmm. I mean, he has been – there is no doubt that he has perpetrated – some some crimes against humanity. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. But it was it's fascinating to go back and think that this guy who is the dictator of a failed regime, um, who is responsible for killing civilians, um, served all of us Tang. I'm not joking. He actually brought in Tang. <laughs> I love Tang. Um, it was just the it was it was a very. They still odd sell that day. here, Tang in America. I, I don't know. I haven't given, seen it. Given all the sanctions, I'm willing to bet it was probably some kind of weird Russian knockoff Tang. But it was, <laughs> yeah. So it's. Um, have this weird 
list of, of dictators or enemies of America that I've been able to sit down and talk to. And it includes Bashar al-Assad, um, Hosni Mubarak, um, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Mm-hmm. Just it's fascinating. It's wow. some weird people. Yeah. And, and he was so confident, though, that you that what's happening today, you're, you're telling us a little bit. So, little yeah, bit. part of the reason we were there is um, America was really pushing Syria to close its borders to Islamic extremists who are basically then going to join um, al-Qaeda in Iraq, right? Um, and, and al-Qaeda in Iraq was, was causing a lot of deaths of U.S. troops and civilians. And so the U.S. wanted Syria to, to, to basically shut down its borders. And he – and Betty regrets this now – he said um, this would never happen ever in Syria. You know, these people – first of all, he denied they were going through even though everybody knows that they were. And he said, you know, and, and we don't have anything to worry about. Islamic extremism will never take hold in Syria. It just won't. He actually repeated that I think two, day, two or three days ago from when we taped this um, on an interview with Italian television um, <laughs> that, no, it couldn't possibly be happening in Syria. You know, um, these are all – it's not Islamic extremism. It's people who are trained by the West and brought in here by the West. Of course, the West is the root of all evil. Um, but he just – he adamantly we pushed him on this. You know, they're coming through. We all know it. <clears throat> We've seen them coming through the border. Um, what happens if they stay? And he just said, you know, I have nothing to fear. Now, for people who don't know the genesis of the Islamic State, it was an offshoot of al-Qaeda in Iraq, the exact people we were talking mm-hmm. about. When Zarqawi, the head, was killed by a U.S. Uh, Hellfire missile in Mosul, these people kind of – a group of them kind of shifted to Syria to, to wait it out. Um, they were aligned at that time with al- big al-Qaeda, as it were, decided that al-Qaeda was not brutal enough and formed their own little small group, which, which eventually grew into the Islamic State. And it's, it's fascinating because – yeah, I hadn't even thought of that conversation until you asked me about it. But now looking back at it, it's like, you know, you got to be careful. <laughs> you started showing me uh, all these pictures of monuments – Palmyra, uh, yeah. They're now gone. Yeah, and I mean that's another thing. Maybe we can pop it on the web. I'm hoping. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's uh, – on that same trip, we actually uh, went out to Palmyra, which for people who don't know was this um, ancient, ancient, ancient city-state um, that was out now in the desert but at the time was uh, in this fertile plain. And it was basically uh, – it was, it was an incredibly rich city because it sat on a major trade route from the east to the west. And um, – the monuments are just fascinating. They were just these beautiful stone monuments, just giant with this intricate carving. Um, and then the Romans eventually conquered it and turned it into one of their, you know, city-states more or less. And um, it, it was so important, you know, they, the Romans wanted it to pay tribute and uh, it, they saw it as a threat to their trade. So um, the, the, I've been watching with a lot of people as um, the Islamic State who has now controlled Palmyra for many, many months – they originally said they weren't going to destroy any monuments because there weren't any monuments, the big monuments that I have pictures of that had, um, you know, pictures of people on it necessarily. And that's, you know, under some, only some uh, examinations of Islamic law, you're not supposed to draw, you're not supposed to have idols. It's similar to early Catholicism, right? Mm-hmm. Is our early, you know, Judaism even where, you know, the, the commandment, you know, you shall make no idols. It's the same kind of root. Um, but... Uh, Every every day I hear news that one of these places has been blown up by the Islamic State basically to get headlines. It's not like they pose any kind of a threat. Um, 
you know, I think back on that trip and it's just, it's heartbreaking. There's no other word for it. It's just heartbreaking. It's so weird how Al Qaeda is so yesterday. Now. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny too, because, um, you know, they're not, they, they, it seems like, yeah, it, you're absolutely right. It seems like it, but the, the structure of Al Qaeda was always based on this loose affiliation of cells. I loved it when people called them franchises. And um, and kind of this one overarching but very loosely in control um, nerve center. And, you know, the nerve center is still there. The leadership has changed. There still are some you know, franchises, again, out there. But what's interesting is, is, frankly, the role that media plays in this in terms of who, who gets the attention, gets mm-hmm. the recruits. Right. And um, it, it's one of the hard things, especially when I was covering foreign news, that you have to think about. And, you know, you don't want to play into anybody's hands. And, um, you know, Al-Qaeda, they're certainly not getting the headlines like the Islamic State. I don't think they're anywhere near the threat, personally. Um, but, you know, the, the Islamic State is, is at least the, the origins of the Islamic, Islamic State was based off of the way that Al-Qaeda worked. Mm-hmm. The big difference here is that... They control land. The Islamic State is has territory, and they have a much better revenue for, uh, stream. Um, Al Qaeda basically, you know, weirdly relied on donations or what they could seize from, you know, robbing banks and committing crimes or selling back um, hostages. Um, the Islamic State does all of that, but they've also got a steady stream of of revenue, which makes them significantly more dangerous. And because of that, um, I, I think really they're they're better at turning, you know getting recruits. And um, that's another thing where they learned is Al-Qaeda, actually here in, in Charlotte, one of the best propagandists was, you know, lived here in Charlotte sure. for a long time, Samir Khan. He originally did that stuff for ISIS, or sorry, for, for um, Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda. But if you look at what ISIS has done is they have built off of that legacy and gotten better. I mean, you look at their videos and their movie quality, you look at their web postings and their magazine quality, you look at their their Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and everything else that they do in terms of social media. And, you know, at least in terms of outreach and numbers, it's there are plenty of companies that would love to be that effective. Um, that all goes back to, you know, one kid here who really helped, you know, Samir Khan, who really helped kind of revolutionize prop- jihadi propaganda with Inspire magazine. So it's funny how, um, you know, it all kind of goes back and it's grown and it's evolved. It's frightening. But it is kind of funny to think about, you know, you don't really think about Samir Khan as being a pioneer in the same ways that you would think about like Henry Ford being a pioneer. But when it comes to others building off of a legacy, mm-hmm. it might work. There was a great Atlantic article about ISIS um, that really gets into the the mindset and, and some of the religious authority that they claim for doing this. Um, Graham Wood. Yeah. I think wrote it. And yeah, I, I look up, we have the TV on over here and I see them all over the news now. But um, yeah, it's just such a hard thing to get your head around, you know. And- <clears throat> I, I highly recommend, I've said this to everyone in the newsroom, but uh, I highly recommend watching the Frontline documentary from this week, ISIS in Afghanistan. And it was mm-hmm. just chilling, the footage you saw there and just, and, and these little kids then being taught. The name of the Russian rifle, uh, Kalishnikov. Uh, Kalishnikov. Kalishnikov. Yeah, this is a Kalishnikov, and uh, this mm-hmm. is and just show these little kids that were like five years old and training them, and um, and just just the whole uh, in the network they have for recruiting and getting and, and get and really starting at a 
at a very young age. And it's it's just, indoctrination. It, indoctrination, and you're just – is there any hope for this country? <laughs> That's just what, when you're when, at the levels that they're doing it. I, it's just – it was just chilling. It was sad um, and scary. Mm-hmm. And I and again, I don't want to diminish anyone's fear. Mm-hmm. They have a right to be scared. Um, what's happening is frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, I've covered wars. I've been to these places. This disturbs me. But at the end of it, you have to stop and and still use what you can of your rational mind, mm-hmm. which can easily be overwhelmed by fear. Mm-hmm. But you know, I remember there were there was a lot of you know hate crimes against innocent Muslims here in the United States after 9-11. I don't think anybody wants to go back to that. But boy, when I well, hear people even when I hear politicians, against six, yeah. uh, just because they had a, a term, they weren't even Muslim. Yeah. People's ignorance. Comes yeah. From. But, it, you know, when you hear politicians like, you know, for a brief um, amount of time this week, Pat McCrory was fundraising on stopping Syrian refugees coming to North Carolina. Ted Cruz is doing it proudly now. Um, boy, Donald Trump biting into this subject like it's the best meal he's ever eaten. And yeah, Muslim. Uh, yeah, getting uh, identification cards or not ruling it out for Muslim uh, identification cards for Muslims. Uh, yeah, and as yeah, far as I understand, it's not our, our internment camps next. Yeah, and it's not. He's not just saying refugees. Even he's saying <laughs> no American Muslims for um, for American citizens <laughs> American that happen citizens, to be yes. of a certain uh, of a certain faith. Well, I think that image that you began and end your piece with the Turkish toddler and the Paris attacks. I mean, where what resonates with you? Uh, more influences your mindset. And yep. I thought that was really poignant. Yeah. yeah, whether it's the Paris attacks or the mm-hmm. uh, the image of a of a of a toddler being washed up on a beach. Great piece, Tom, and uh, by far the best reporting on what a lot of governors are, how a lot of governors are responding to what's going on in Paris. And there you have it. I mean, you don't have to go to uh, other news outlets for the best analysis of what's going on across the world i think you need to tune into wfa talks because i found what you just <laughs> everything you, you said i'm on all seriousness your analysis and your i just was uh, fascinated by things that you said yeah well i didn't even think about it until you asked me uh, why i was in syria and it was like huh oh anyway <laughs> and that's funny it puts in context i i heard uh, bashir al-assad's name over there and i heard you say the president it's like, oh, okay, now I know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tom. Yes, Tom and talked. Well, we're going to put some of those pictures on, uh, on our website cool. that you took in uh, Syria. So uh, thanks a lot, guys. I think that's – we had some other things to get into, but boy, this is uh, – Yeah, I prattled on there. Sorry about that. No, I, th- I thought it was, it was a fascinating discussion, and uh, thanks for sharing. Um, with that is the 63rd edition of uh, WFA Talks. Here's to number 64. Yeah. 64. All right. Thanks, guys.